A satirical Christian website recently posted this story, and it's a bit an example of dark satire, but it serves a purpose that we'll get to. The headline reads, Historian, Historians believe Isaac declined all father-son camping trip invitations after the incident. <laughs> Following the publication of an influential paper presented at an ecumenical conference exploring Isaac's relationship with his father Abraham, most historians now believe that Isaac found excuses to avoid hikes, camping trips, and father-son wilderness outings with his dad after what the family delicately termed the incident. The conventional view is that the incident ruined Abraham and Isaac's father-son relationship, but a deeper analysis of archaeological, linguistic, and cultural factors showed that Isaac was still warm towards his father, but that he did demure from any outdoor excursions alone with him. The scholarly consensus is now that after the incident, Isaac became jumpy, keeping his distance, distance of several feet from Abraham when they were on errands together. Researchers at the conference determined that Isaac later went on to avoid all other father-son bonding experiences as well, but only because he'd become a teenager by then and thought his dad was super lame. <laughs> well, the website posted this dark satire to get us chuckling a bit about this very serious story that our Old Testament reading gives us this morning. The satire serves a purpose. As a species, we tend to laugh at things that make us uncomfortable. It's a way of setting some distance between us and the uncomfortableness, and this is an uncomforting story. The story has certainly attracted attention. It may be the most well-known story in the Old Testament. It's certainly the most known story about Abraham. And for centuries, Jewish and Christian and Muslim scholars and thinkers have poured over the story, examining it and processing it and trying to explain it. Libraries contain a wealth of books using this story as the springboard for exploring such trivial subjects as the meaning of human existence itself. So we certainly aren't going to sort out everything this morning. And to be honest, I don't think I've ever cut out as much stuff from the sermon as I've worked on it as I have on this. And because perhaps that dark satire also serves another purpose to show us a bit of the silliness of overthinking the story and at least the potential of overthinking and how it's possible that perhaps scholarly consensus misses the point. So we won't sort it all out, but I hope we discard some understandings that you may have come across that might not be so helpful and find a lens through which to view the story more properly. It's certainly a powerful story and it's written dramatically. Well, let's look at the parts of the story here. First, there's the call. Our Old Testament reading opened up with the words, after these things. So that's at least a clue that we need to keep in mind the things that have come before. For the sake of time now, we can't consider all of the Abraham story. We'll consider a piece of it, and maybe more of it will come to mind as we continue. After these things. After these things. God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. I'd like to point out how similar this is to the first call of God to Abraham. Genesis 12, now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred, and your father's house to the land that I will show you. 
Both of these calls are similar. In both of these calls, the call is to leave and to go. To leave a place that is settled and to go to a place that's unknown. To leave a place of comfort and to go to an unknown place. Notice that in both calls, Abraham doesn't give Abraham, God doesn't give Abraham GPS coordinates or even an old-fashioned street address. He simply tells him to go and that he will know when he arrives where he's supposed to go. And then third, in each of these calls, Abraham is called to make a sacrifice. In the first call, Abraham is to leave a city, a civilized place, and head out into the wilderness. Called to leave family, culture, his home, his business. To sacrifice. To sacrifice, God lists it, your country, your kindred, your father's house. To leave everything that provided stability. And the second call to Abraham from our reading this morning, Abraham is told to make a different sacrifice. Of course, to sacrifice his only son, the son that he loves, Isaac. To sacrifice the security and stability of the entire family, as we'll see, the future security and stability of the family, the family that God's promised would be a blessing to the entire world, that from this family one would come who would bless the entire world. In the first call, the original call, Abraham is told to leave everything. He leaves everything and looks for something. What is he looking for? Well, we're told in the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 8. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place. And he went out, not knowing where he was going, for he was looking for the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God Abraham is called to leave a city. His father had left the city of Ur, a very old and ancient city in southern Iraq today. At one point, many years ago, archaeologists believed it was the oldest city in the world history. It's certainly a very old and very ancient city. There's some hint in Scripture that Abraham's father, Terah, had received a call to leave Ur. Certainly he moved the family to another city, the city of Haran, an economic and political center in southern Turkey today. But Abraham leaves the city. He's not looking for a city like these two cities. He's looking for a city which has foundations, a city which is built and designed by God. You see, human cities don't have much in a way of foundations. I mean, look at Gainesville. It's an interesting city. I had a great opportunity this week at clergy conference to meet an Anglican priest who'd been a resident of Gainesville and growing up in the 1960s and 70s, who was called, in fact, to be a pastor in this very sanctuary we are in this morning. He described kneeling somewhere along right through here to say, I've been called to be a pastor right here. And he spoke in great detail touching detail of the spiritual sacredness of this very building he had known 50 years ago. And it turns out that he and Father Bob had known each other a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. No, 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 actually right here on this very ground. And Father Bob mentioned that Gainesville in those days was a small town surrounded by a big university and that the townsfolk, the kids as they grew up here, Kim is nodding her head. She's heard stories too. Knew each other. And Gainesville is an interesting town where there's a lot more people here today. 
And I would guess that most people living in Gainesville today have a lot of beliefs in common. That we're all pretty smart, for one. And that we've pretty much figured everything out. I mean, we have a university in town. And that a lot of people in Gainesville would say that we all know things that are true about society and science and so on. But think about it. In this same town, if you went back in time to the same academic departments we have at the university today, and you asked around about social views and intellectual and political and moral and religious and scientific views in all the areas of intellectual life back in the 1920s, the 1930s, the 1940s, the 1950s, hey, even the 1990s when I was there, a lot of ideas being bounced around on campus would sound old-fashioned. So old-fashioned that they'd be embarrassing. And many of them so embarrassing that we would rather not think about them. There were things that everyone knows to be true in Gainesville 80 years ago that most people in Gainesville today would despise and condemn or not want even to think about, or at best, laugh at. So we know that at one time, what everyone knew to be true in Gainesville wasn't true. And yet today, what everyone knows to be true in Gainesville somehow is true. Well, at what magical moment was it when everything the people in Gainesville know to be true became true? Was it two years ago, last year, last month, yesterday? When did that moment come? Well, you see where I'm going. Just give it time, right? Because eventually the people in future Gainesville will look back at us in embarrassment. They'll look at what everyone knows to be true in 2024, and they'd rather not think about it. What will those things be in 2050, say? I plan to be around to find out. And I'll probably be embarrassed about them too. I often wonder what it is that everyone knows to be true today that will horrify and disgust people in the future. Not things that are coming to our mind right now, things that haven't even darkened our consciousnesses, things that aren't even on our radar that a hundred years from now people will wonder how could they ever have believed such a thing? And we just drift along because everyone knows that it's true. We might think that we live in a city with a strong intellectual foundation, but we know it isn't true. And the same thing is about all the people who live in Gainesville. All of us know someone. Some of us have been the someone. Someone who has it all together. And then comes a shattering event, an earth-shaking event. And they crumble emotionally, psychologically. Their foundation is gone. We all know someone who's prepared their financial plan well. A plan to go to college or a plan to start a business or a plan to retire. And that foundation looks solid. But then something happens and the foundation is gone. Some put all their energy into being healthy and fit and working out. But it all eventually falls away apart. Given time, it all just falls apart. Just ask around during the coffee hour. Some people take this route, not all. Some people take this route to look more attractive to others. But that falls apart. Nobody looks hot in a hospital gown. The cities we build for ourselves have no foundation. 
The cities that we build have no solid foundation. Some of us were at a conference last week and we heard a reference to that same idea. The cities that we build don't have foundations. But the city that God builds has a foundation, a solid foundation. And of course, there's much to say about how and why God provides this foundation, why belief in God provides an intellectual, psychological foundation for life. If you happen to be a political junkie or you hang around on Twitter, there's a big discussion this week. Somebody said there are some people in the United States who believe that our rights come from God. Can you believe such a thing? And one response was, well, even from people who don't believe in God, said we have to believe that our rights come from God, even if we don't believe in God, because otherwise the whole thing falls apart. Because if our rights are whatever somebody in Washington, D.C. decides they are, they can decide we don't have them. Even atheists were saying, and some of you know this was true if you watched this week, we have to pretend at least, or else the whole system falls apart. And we could talk about why this is the case and why it's not something that's made believe, but it actually is true. But I'll save all that for another time because this morning we're looking at Abraham who leaves a city that has no foundation that seems to provide comfort, stability, and prosperity, a city that has no real foundation, and he sacrifices those things, comfort and stability, and looks for a city with a foundation. And the question this morning is this. Why not be willing to sacrifice those things that have no foundation for things which have a foundation? Why cling to things that provide no foundation when there are things that provide foundation? Famous missionary Jim Elliott famously said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. He's no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. This actually was repeated to us at the conference this week as as well. So I might as well share another thought here that I heard at this conference for the first time, a mind picture drawn by Sally Breedlove, one of our speakers. She said, most of us want to write out our life story and then at the end pass it over to God to sign off on. An interesting picture. And then she asked us, what stops us from signing off on our own life story now and passing it over to God to write it out. What stops us from signing off on our life story and handing the paper over to God to write it out? Well, you might say, this is all nice-sounding stuff about sacrifice in general, nice-sounding Christian stuff about sacrifice, but what about this horrifying story about Abraham's binding of Isaac now and preparing to sacrifice him? As I said, Earlier for centuries, thinkers have contemplated the story and there's much to consider. I can tell you how much there is to consider because I deleted pages and pages and pages of this stuff from my sermon. The transition from paganism to a belief in one God. Some scholars have argued that it's this event in which God is trying to exhibit that child sacrifice can, handle, can be tolerated no more. I don't myself buy that, but there's a lot to think about there. I think God could have said that in a little less dramatic way if that was the whole point. But there's much to think about, certainly, in this transition away from paganism. But we can't get away from the context of child sacrifice that permeates the culture that Abraham lives in. And connecting that common, common 
context of child sacrifice to the other context, which we find all over the world, that the firstborn child, or usually the firstborn son, is the most important who carries forward the entire future, economically, politically, of the entire family. And to see together in context how that demand of God on Abraham to sacrifice Isaac would be horrifying on the one hand, but on the other hand, not unexpected. Not as shocking as it might sound to us. It might actually sound kind of normal to Abraham to have a God demand the sacrifice of his firstborn son. Imagine living in a culture where that would not be as shocking, say, if God had demanded that Abraham sacrifice Sarah, that would be horrifying, but also Abraham would have no concept of what that demand was about. But asking for the death of your firstborn child, well, that fits into the context that he knows. How horrifying to live in a world like that. Well, there's much to consider and possibly overthink. It seems that the majority of the commenters on this story have seen the main point of the story to be the theme of obedience. The main takeaway, the scholarly consensus, I guess, is that this is a story about how God demands obedience to his commands. Well, that's certainly true. I'm not standing up here preaching against obeying God. But the danger in focusing excessively on Abraham's obedience is that we've tended to focus on Abraham's faith as faith alone. Only faith, mushy faith. Faith for the faith of faith in something and not on what Abraham put faith in, or rather who Abraham put faith in. The content of Abraham's faith has often been ignored by focusing simply on his obedience. And I don't think that obedience is the main takeaway from the story. And why not? Well, Abraham himself points us away from the focus on his own obedience. That's not the lesson that he himself takes from his experience, and we see that. Because at the end of the story, Abraham gives a name to the place that summarizes his experience of this story. And he doesn't call this place, you must obey the Lord. He calls this place, the Lord will provide. He says, from now on, people are going to look at this place and they're going to say, that's right, the Lord will provide. They're not going to say, you better believe God, you better obey God. They're going to say, you better believe God will provide. The story, as all the stories are, is not about you and what you have to do for God. The story is about Jesus and what Jesus did for you. That's our first clue, the naming of the place, that there's more going on here than simply an an example of obedience being given to us. Isaac is the son of promise. He's a son born to an old couple that again in the book of Hebrews tells us is as good as dead when it comes to having children. Well, they're as good as dead. But Isaac's own birth showed that this God who had called Abraham controls life and death, giving this couple as good as dead life. This is the God Abraham put his faith into, a God who'd been faithful in the past. Remember the start of our story? After these things, all these things in which God had been faithful, and this faithful God has control over life and death. Why does Abraham tell his servants that both he and Isaac will return to them. Well, again, the book of Hebrews tells us Abraham knew that God would keep his promise. And even if Isaac were to be killed at his father's own hand, that God has the power over life and death and would raise him from the dead. Abraham knew that sacrifice is required, hence the cryptic, 
God will provide for himself a lamb. And he also knew that the child of promise would somehow survive, even death. And he could hold both these ideas in his head at once. And we begin at the seed. The story is pointing us to the greater son of promise that all stories point us to the same place as all the stories point us to we're pointed to Jesus. Again, the Bible is not about you and what you need to do. The Bible is about Jesus and what Jesus did. There are so many details of the story that only looking backwards through the lens of Jesus, we can see that they're pointing forward to Jesus. We look backward to Jesus to see these stories pointing towards him. Jesus is the son of promise, the ultimate son of promise. We have here the theme of sacrifice, the theme of substitution in a sacrifice, and the pure grace of that substitution. Abraham does nothing to produce the ram which is ultimately sacrificed. It's not one of his crops, or one of his animals. It's not something he's produced. He does nothing, but there it is, the sacrifice. The offering of a son by a father. The connection to the resurrection. Some not so obvious, but as you think about them, you see them. Isaac carrying the wood on his back to the place of sacrifice. Catherine Schifferdecker, a professor at Luther Seminary, has written about how first century rabbis who had no connection to Christianity, but they had plenty of experiences of witnessing Roman crucifixion in writing about this story, noted how Isaac carries the wood on his back like a criminal carrying a cross to his death. Even that ram whose horns are oddly caught in the thicket, the early church fathers saw there a premonition of the crown of thorns a thicket being taken, that ram wore a crown of thorns. Even the age of Isaac in Jewish tradition, most Christians, I think, kind of picture Isaac as like 10, 12 years old, maybe 13, as a young kid. In Jewish tradition, the Midrash, the written tradition of the Jewish people developed over time, Isaac is in his mid-30s. They arrive at this by adding and subtracting various ages of his parents, Guess who else was sacrificed in about the middle 30s? But Jesus, roughly the age of 33, even picturing his age, points us to Jesus. The very place of the story points us to Jesus, Mount Moriah. There are three little verses in 2 Chronicles chapter 3 that summarizes a great deal complex story. This spot, Mount Moriah, was a place where the angel of the Lord had stopped destruction coming upon Israel. The angel stands on a stone there, a stone that's owned by a man named Ornan, the Jebusite. Not a major biblical figure, you would think, Ornan, the Jebusite. But there was a large stone there that he used to thresh wheat on. That's where the angel stood. David offered sacrifices on that stone, thanking God for delivering Israel. And when Solomon begins to build a temple, he begins laying the foundation right on that stone that stone that the Jewish people say is the same stone upon which Abraham had offered Isaac. It's possible that you can see that stone today, although it's unlikely that I'm going to go. It's unlikely that any of us are going to be able to go to see it because that very stone is under the Dome of the Rock in Jerusalem, the structure built over it, where if you're privileged to, you can go on to, to Google and find pictures of it taken in the 1920s. That's about the best you can, you, most, most of us are going to get to it. But you can see that very stone on the top of Mount Moriah, 
And on some outcropping of that mountain, Jesus himself was crucified between two thieves. All of these connections going back to this story. Imagine being the first of the disciples to learn about all this. And we know who they are. The two disciples on the road to Emmaus. And Jesus takes the scriptures and goes through them and says, this is where these stories point to me. And surely Jesus told them about this story. And one of the disciples on the road to the Emmaus said, so that's what that was all about. And the other one said, I knew there was something about the ram's horn and the thicket and the thorns. But Jesus already knows this. In our gospel reading today, Peter has just proclaimed that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, the son of promise, the descendant of Isaac who would bless the entire world. And as soon as Peter says this, what does Jesus say immediately? That this son of promise must be sacrificed. And yes, then be raised from the dead. And then just as if he were telling the story in reverse, and I think he was, he issues a call, which is much like the call issued to Abraham to leave, to go, and to sacrifice. Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. To go, to leave, to follow Jesus. To go where exactly? He doesn't give a location. Later, Jesus is going to say to his disciples, you know where I'm going. And Thomas says, oh, oh, no, we don't. We don't know where you're going. Jesus says you have to sacrifice. That sacrifice is to deny yourself, to take up your cross and follow me. I had a notation here to point out that we're not talking about pretty crosses that we have around us today, but somebody's already taken care of that for me, so I can just go ahead to the next page. Follow me. No location, but a destination. To take up your cross, there's only one place you're going, and that is to death. And just in case there's any confusion about what Jesus is talking about, he says immediately, next word, whoever would save his life will lose it. He's talking about losing life because he says, whoever loses life for my sake and the gospels will save it. And then Jesus asks, for what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? The world is full of cities without foundations, of human constructions that will crumble and fall. And what's the profit of gaining a world full of comfortable, stable, secure cities whose foundations cannot save your soul? What would a city built on a firm, stable foundation look like? Well, Paul gives us some insight in our epistle reading. There's one more thing to think about. Do you remember what God tells Abraham after the angel stops the sacrifice of Isaac? God says to Abraham, Now I know that you have not withheld your son, your only son. Now I know that you have not withheld your son, your only son. And what does Paul say? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? God says to Abraham, now I know that you have not withheld your son, your only son. And the Christian says back to God what God says to Abraham, now I know that you have not withheld your son, your only son. Now I know. Now I can be sure, as Paul says, for I am sure that neither death 
nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And that is a solid foundation. That's a foundation no human city can provide, but that is a solid foundation. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.